Okay, we are going to uh, do a little talk about Paul Emil Breitenfeld, uh, who was born November 25th, uh, 1924. As I'm born November 23rd, I kind of got an idea about his personality. Everything I've read about him suggests, yeah, we're both Sagittarians, no doubt about that. Um, a little bit of um, confusion about his heritage. Uh, some people feel that uh, he was what we might call a non-practicing Jew, and that had been his family's dynamic for generations. His father was uh, Emil uh, Breitenfield, and of course uh, Paul took the middle name um, uh, from his father. Um, he's raised in a fairly musical home in that his father was an accomplished uh, keyboard player, both piano and organ, um, who played uh, gigs around uh, San Francisco area, California, and um, did a lot of work um, in theaters uh, during the silent movie era. He provided, you know, the music was quite common, uh, primarily on organ, a lot of these big theaters uh, were equipped with uh, gigantic pipe organs just to make that whole thing uh, really, really exciting uh, for the audience. Uh, the father also was a composer and arranger, and uh, he wrote music for publication, as well as scores that were used with larger ensembles that were playing, again, in theaters for silent uh, and talking film. Um, so his father was uh, on the cutting edge of what we might call um, uh, scores for movies <laughs> and the um, uh, budding Hollywood uh, embassy. Um, Paul himself uh, did not start uh, playing until he was 12 years old. And his instrument was the clarinet, which he played from the time he was 12 until the time that he graduated uh, high school. Uh, he went to uh, San Francisco Polytechnical High School, and um, after that he went to uh, San Francisco State College. As a freshman, he switched to alto saxophone. Uh, he auditioned for uh, the uh, Army Band, and he made it and was assigned uh, to a band right there in San Francisco. So uh, he had a lot of good luck, at least up to that point. One of the people that he encountered while in the Army doing an audition was a pianist by the name of Dave Brubeck, who was assigned to the same musical unit as Paul. Uh, Paul, however, was never shipped overseas. <laughs> and Dave Brubeck was sent away to Europe. And he served abroad uh, in the military um, for three or four years. Um, they didn't see each other again until um, the war was over. By that time, uh, when Paul came out of the army, 
he decided that he did not like his name. He's around there playing gigs here and there, and uh, people are having a hard time with his name. Uh, there was a popular singer at that time on the radio uh, named uh, Ray Desmond, I think. And Paul said, you know, I like that name. It's, uh, it's unusual and uh, it's sweet. I like it. So he changed his name from Paul Emo Breitenfeld to Paul Desmond. Now you know who we're talking about. Yeah, right. So he's playing gigs here and there, gigs here and there, here's here and there. And finally he connects with Dave Brubeck again. And they start playing little gigs at this little club and that little club and this little club. And there was always a little conflict between them because they were very, very different people. Dave was a settled down, fairly conservative, married man with one wife and three little kids. And Paul was a Bohemian. He did it all. He had lots of uh, addictions, including alcohol and an array of uh, other party favors, drugs. Uh, he was married uh, once from 1947 to 1949, I think it lasts like two years. But Paul was also a what they call a ferocious womanizer. Ferocious. He never let one get by if he could help himself. And uh, he was a good looking guy. He had that sweet sound. And so he used that to sharpen his lure and to help him, how shall we say, capture his game. Because that's all it was to him. Just something to do. Um, he and Dave had a disagreement um, over a gig and um, Dave fired him. And then Paul went back to the club owner to make sure that Dave could not continue to play the gig without him. So because Dave fired Paul, Dave himself and his entire band got fired from this club. Uh, this set up a, <laughs> let's just say they had a pause in their relationship. And Dave was quite angry about it. And his um, instruction to his wife was, if he ever comes to my front door, do not let him in our house. I don't want that person near you or our kids. Now, certainly don't want him near me. Um, but Paul was quite engaging. He had that slick wit and tongue. And uh, one day he is uh, driving around and he hears the Dave Brubeck trio on the radio. Now, Paul is doing little gigs. He's doing okay. But he's not on the radio. So he decides, okay, in order for me to move myself up, I got to get back with Dave. So he did what he had to do. He went to Dave's home. And as was his talent, he sweet-talked 
Dave's wife into letting him into the house and she escorted him back into the backyard where believe it or not, Dave Brubeck is in the backyard hanging up diapers. Uh, let's just say the conversation went sideways real fast. But Dave was a gentleman. He didn't want to yell at his wife or anything and the little kids all around. You don't want them crying. So it, 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 it stayed at a simmer. Uh, they agreed to agree and disagree, but to come up with a contract. Now, Paul was quite crafty because this contract only had one signature, and that was Dave. And the main purpose of the contract was that Dave could never fire him, period, ever. And Paul agreed that he would perform extra duties for Dave. As a result, he would do administrative duties for the band. He would do compositions and arranging and all of that. And something else he agreed, he would serve as babysitter for Dave's three kids. Okay, your wife is standing there. She definitely needs a babysitter. She needs a break. And Paul has come up with the right combination of, uh, how shall I say, this sweetness <laughs> to cause Dave to sign that contract. And so the band reconstituted itself. The Dave, Breck, Dave Brubeck trio became the Dave Brubeck Quartet with the addition of Mr. Paul Dedman. You can say the rest is history. They started playing gigs and quickly became one of the most popular gigs on the West Coast. And Dave was a good businessman because, you know, jazz, you don't always get nice surroundings and healthy and this and that. And Dave, as I said, was a clean living kind of guy. And jazz clubs, uh, not necessarily clean living things. A lot of loose wearing, a lot of alcohol, a lot of people out there with drugs and this and that. And, Oh, Dave wanted to get away from it as much as he could, so some of the bigger gigs that uh, the quartet played were at colleges. And recordings were made of these uh, at Oberlin uh, University in Ohio, uh, at uh, Ohio University, and at Michigan State University. Uh, not only did he play gigs there among the several colleges that they did on their college tour, but they made recordings at those uh, three schools. And so they are cultivating a younger audience of fans. And this gave them a fan base that is emerging with education, refinement, and eventually some money to buy recordings and whatnot. So Dave is taking care of business and Paul is helping him organize all this stuff. And it's going really, really well. And they're making all of these great recordings as well. The funny thing is, with all the recordings they made, the most popular single tune the Dave Brubeck Quartet ever recorded 
was a tune called Take Five. And as I prepared for this, I listened to that tune again and again and again, because I listened to it so much as a kid. I hadn't listened for quite a few years. And yeah, it's marvelous. And I especially love uh, the drum solo as performed by the masterful uh, Joe Morello, who was the uh, drummer uh, in that group. Um, just masterful stuff. And the way uh, Paul, uh, how shall I say, weaved in and out of the textures and times and harmonic uh, poly chords and rhythmic party rhythms that Dave and the rhythm section are creating is, is was just, just fabulous. And no one could do that improvisational counterpoint, which means you are improvising a melody against the melody. No one could do that better than Paul Desmond. So if Dave had not taken Paul back and signed that contract, take five would never have happened. Yeah. And the popularity of that quartet, of course, was based on that um, that one tune and that album uh, about time. So this is uh, the beginning of uh, a great um, run of hits and um, for fans, critics, everyone, for Paul Desmond and the Dave Brubeck Quartet. Now Paul always kept something else on the side. He was um, a typical as was Dave, of what we call the cool jazz. Not hot, like Dizzy uh, Gillespie and those guys, but cool like Chet Baker and uh, Gary Mulligan, and even Miles Davis for a while. And this all came out of a legacy that was created by Lester Young long, long ago with his nice, smooth, easy, softer sound. Of course, Paul Desmond would uh, credit uh, Lee Konitz as being his number one inspiration for his sound and his approach. But all that, as I say, it really goes back to uh, Lester Young without the blues that uh, Lester put into everything. The cool jazz didn't have all that blues because when you got all those flat fives and flat sevens and flat nines, it can't be cool, it's gotta be hot. So that's kind of how that whole uh, thing went. Um, Paul liked to work with a lot of different people. Chet Baker, a young trumpet player and singer, did a lot of great things together. Jim Hall, great guitarist, was a frequent collaborator with uh, Paul Desmond, and some of his best recordings uh, are done uh, with uh, Jim Hall and uh, great concerts, um, including a concert um, uh, at the Half Note uh, in uh, New York City that was actually recorded and is one of those celebrated uh, recordings. Uh, Paul also, believe it or not, recorded with Milt Jackson, who I covered uh, in a previous uh, session, 
uh, and the uh, modern jazz quartet because as you remember MJQ was doing a kind of a uh, classical infused softer uh, chamber like jazz which was closer to the west coast cool jazz than it was to the east coast hot jazz so that also worked and that concert I believe was done at Town Hall a gigantic uh, theater in New York, I think capacity of 1,500, uh, sold out and was great, as was the concert um, uh, with Jim Hall at the Half Note, sold out. So he had becoming very, very popular in his own right alongside his popularity with the Dave Brubeck Quartet. He also had many collaborations with Jerry Mulligan, the great baritone saxophonist who was also West Coast cool jazz kind of guy. And um, they did two recordings together, uh, Jerry Mulligan, uh, Paul Desmond, and then an album that was called Two of a Mind. And two of a mind they were, because Jerry Mulligan was no angel. He was no Dave Brubeck. He had even more habits and liabilities than even Paul Desmond, all of the above. So they were very, very compatible in spirit, and maybe that is why uh, they were compatible musically as well. And that last album they did, Two of a Mind, kind of suggests that they both realized that they were, as I like to say, uh, two sides of the same coin. Um, Paul continued to uh, record uh, with the Dave Brubeck uh, Quartet until I think uh, that ended somewhere in the uh, 70s when Dave decided to go into um, bigger uh, pieces, suites, and uh, more classical infused music and uh, bigger orchestrations and etc. And Paul continued to do uh, his small uh, group stuff. Uh, Paul lived in New York and uh, Dave of course lived in California. So uh, you had guys who liked two different worlds. Dave liked it in the country in California and Paul liked it in the city in New York where he could do what he liked to do which was just about everything. Now, Paul was a chain smoker. Smoked constantly. And he was also a big drinker. And Scotch whiskey, baby, that was him. So anytime you saw him, uh, he was kind of like my father. A cigarette in one hand, and uh, that's a Scotch in the other. Uh, that's the way he rolled. Um, late in his life, well, his life, uh, he didn't live but into his 50s, but, you know, around 50, um, he was diagnosed with cancer. And he had this uh, incredible um, sense of humor. And uh, his response, um, when he was told that you have uh, very serious lung cancer and it's probably going to take you out of here, he was like, 
Oh my God, oh my God. You mean my kidneys are okay? After all that liquor I drink? Hey, I'm really happy about that. Kidneys are okay. So he had that weird sense of humor. Um, eventually, uh, the cancer won. But despite all of his um, liabilities, his habits, his um, bohemian ways, he had a really good heart. Um, when Dave came back in later years and his kids were grown up, those little kids whose diapers he was hanging out, you know, back in the 50s, were now musicians themselves, bass, uh, keyboard, I think, and saxophone, um, he brought Paul Desmond back to play with uh, his sons and him, and uh, they did some tours and recordings and whatnot, and. Uh, and it wasn't long after that um, Paul finally uh, died from the cancer. A couple of things that shows his heart, because sometimes you have to look past a man's habits and look at his heart. Number one, take five was the biggest thing that had been done by Dave Brubeck. He won a lot of money made on that one tune. And Paul wrote it, and he was smart enough to retain the copyright for it. So he got all the money from that too. In his will, he directed that every penny after his death from Take Five will go to the Red Cross. He never served in a war, but he had a lot of friends that had left like Dave uh, and didn't come back. So he was very appreciative of the work of the Red Cross, so he gave them all the proceeds from Take Five to this very day. The other thing he did was he willed his personal saxophone to one of Dave's sons. Yes, he did that. And he had a big, bawling grand piano in his little apartment. Um, in New York, and they had a hard time figuring how to get it here and get it there. It was right near this club he wanted to give it to. So in order to take possession of the piano, the guy had to reinvigorate, uh, reconstruct, tear down walls, everything, and make room for that grand piano. But he wanted Paul's piano in his club, and that too happened. And it stayed in that club until the club closed um, a few years ago. Paul Dazen is quite a controversial figure in that there are those of us who like the hotter jazz who kind of frowned on that soft, cool jazz kind of thing that he did, but you could not you could not take from him his incredible talent. And so although people may not have preferred what he did, everyone had a lot of respect for what he did. Uh, the instrument he gave to Brubeck was his uh, Selmer um, a Super Balance Action Alto Saxophone that uh, goes back to 1951. I think he bought it right at the time that he rejoined Dave Brubeck and the trio became the quartet. So that went to the Brubeck family. 
Um, he was a masterful saxophone player, and aside from his very sweet, clear tone, he was known for playing the highest notes ever on the alto sax. His altissimo, altissimo high note, altissimo register was just incredible, and all in that balance action, and a hard rubber mouthpiece with a Rico three and a half reed. Now, before I end this, I gotta tell you about Ricos. I know there's people here who are going, Rico, man, that's a student read. Yeah, you're right, but they're cheap. And you can buy them by the box. And I've known professional woodwind players who use Ricos. And they would buy the whole box. And if there were 20 reads in it, you see them trying to read and throwing it away. Trying to read and throwing it away. But then they would try one that worked and they would swear that the ones that worked were better than any of the other more reputable reads, higher priced reads available. And I remember playing with a clarinet player who would sit there every concert with his box of Ricos and go through them and throw them and go through them warm and then finally he'd find one that worked with that big smile on his face. And that's what Paul Desmond did as well. Very particular, but also frugal. <laughs> he had to have money for his cigarettes and liquor and for all those women he was chasing. So let's focus on the music. The sound, unmistakable. The swing, light, airy, but unmistakable. Control of the artesimal register, impeccable. He lived the life of a bohemian. He enjoyed every minute of his life. He had a good sense of humor and even when he was faced with his own mortality, he was able to make a joke and see humor in his situation. Go listen to some Paul Desmond, who started life as Paul Emo Bradenfield in 1924 and left us in 1977. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure delivering this one because I learned a lot about someone I've known about my whole life but had never dug into who this wonderful musician was. Thank you very much.